Welcome to the ThinkSpace podcast with myself, John Stoskowski and Danny Massaro. Our goal with this podcast is a simple one. We discuss and dissect a prescient topic, issue or theme that we think is interesting and might help us humans better understand why we think, feel and do what we do. If you'd like to engage in these types of conversations too, you can check out thinkspace.academy for a unique cohort-based course that will help you think critically and live authentically. Hope you enjoy the episode. Well, just to give Martin Heidegger a little bit of context, he was a German philosopher, uh, lived from 1889 to 1976, best known for his contributions to the field of phenomenology and existentialism, really. And I'm sure like most people who you speak to who read philosophy or study philosophy, they tend to agree that he's one of the most important and one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. The main focus that we're going to have in the episode today is Heidegger's concept of Dasein. And that was a concept that he introduced in his his main text, really, or his fundamental text called Being in Time, which was published in 1927. What Dasein is, according to Heidegger, he, he basically introduced it as a term for the type of being that humans possess. Um, and it, it translates literally in German as being there. Now, Heidegger was a bit of a funny cat, really, because he tended to invent a lot of his own words because he didn't want to, he wanted to conceptualize stuff that hadn't really previously been conceptualized. So a lot of the words that he uses, he came up with, Dasein being one of them. But it translates roughly as being there um, or being in the world. And that's what we're going to dig in today and why we think that's just an important way to, to maybe reflect on your own experiences and look at the world around you. We think it's a really useful, a really useful concept. It's probably just as a little, not a warning, but a lot of Heidegger's work can be interpreted quite differently. So Danny and I are going to give some of our interpretations of it. Danny, especially having studied it, as you're going to hear on his PhD. But we're just giving you a bit of an interpretation, hopefully switching you on to something it, getting you interested in it and thinking actually yeah that's that's something I might want to go and read about myself or listen to more or find out more about in your own time we'll hopefully just switch you on to that and give you some insights that way so Danny like like I just mentioned you used Heidegger quite a lot in yep. your PhD and he's certainly a name I think that's probably come up in most of the episodes we've done I think so yeah. far we've definitely referred to him and quoted him perhaps giving examples from his particular view around phenomenology so I don't know if that's maybe a best point to start from is just you give us your insight into why he became such an important figure for you when doing your recent PhD work and we'll take it from there. I, my, my title of my study was an uh an ontology uh, of of being and how one might live well through a sporting life. Heidegger was famous for basically studying being, and he wasn't he wasn't about what is you know he didn't want to what he didn't ask what is human being. He asked what is it like to be a human being that cares about everything going on. And he sort of came up with loads of different terms. And I was sort of I got I got to Sartre, which we talked about in the episode on Bad Faith, but Sartre had gone over to Germany, met Hussell, who was the first famous phenomenologist, and Heidegger was his student. Heidegger fell out with Hussell because he, he started to have a pop at his concept of what he called this version of phenomenology he did. And he said, basically, he turned it back into a thing, a process, which 
apparently phenomenology isn't supposed to be because phenomenology is the study of actual lived experience it tends to want to stop the the subject object view of the world so more of the, the the Descartes what Cartesian way of thinking about the world that we in some ways it's just a world of objects and human is just another object obviously that's very rational scientific and so on but Heidegger said no there's been a forgetfulness of being human beings aren't objects they are temporal processes because they know that they live through time unlike objects do then he uses like trees rocks you know so and even animals, he said, animals don't know that. They're in instinct loops. He says, we impress intelligence onto them, but most animals are just in instinct loops. But humans know first and foremost that they are temporal beings. We'll talk about it later. He said, we are beings towards death. We know we're the only ones that know we're going to die as well. And that, that can play on our minds. Sartre found all this fascinating, uh, went more with sort of Heidegger's views. And you can see a lot of Sartre's uh, stuff that he sort of took from Heidegger, elements of that in his work. Heidegger was also really influenced by Nietzsche, so there's a bit of a strand there. Maybe we'll do an episode on Nietzsche and some bits of his, and we can we can see. So all these philosophers, you know, they were taking bits, the best bits, the things they liked off each other and rejecting other parts and, you know, like debating philosophy. Because at the end of the day, it's just concepts. But Heidegger's therefore came up with this concept called Dasein. And instead of saying human being, he wanted, he wanted a new word, like you say, to make people not have any connotations with the old word. So he called human beings Daseins. And he said that a Dasein is a being there. You are, you, you, as ultimately as a human, you just find yourself thrown into the world. You're just here. Your first primordial first sense is kind of like, I'm here. <laughs> you know, and he said, if you forget that bit, that is a, a sort of terrible flaw in, in, in your thinking about existence. So he said at the start of all existence and all everything is this sort of feeling you have that you just find yourself kind of here in the world and, you, and you're just there. You're not like living in, living on the sidelines of the world as if you're detached looking in, which is more of a an, an ethic ontology where you sort of look from the outside into the fishbowl. You are more, you are constantly like the fish in the fishbowl swimming around looking you know, almost looking out at the world. And he criticised lots of philosophy for doing it the other way and saying, you know, you've totally negated and wiped out the fact that humans are first and foremost thrown in. They didn't ask to be put here. They didn't choose the parents. They just find themselves in a particular place, in a particular time in history, in a particular situation, living on a certain street, you know, in a certain culture, blah, blah, on and on and on, which will talk about in a bit that thrownness and you've just got to get on with it so that's that's how i was and i found that like linked to athletes i've seen a lot of sports science that have come up come up with like ethic approaches to what sport is and we see it on all the you know the, the commentary and they talk about the football matches and the, what's going on from the outside that's very popular on telly now obviously and sports science but heidegger would criticize that because he said no you're not you're not the person playing in the football match. You're the person outside watching it and telling everybody what's going on. But you're not actually, if it was Cristiano Ronaldo, you're not Cristiano Ronaldo being Cristiano Ronaldo playing that game. You're outside talking about him. What do you, you know, really, you, you're just making it all 
all up. The, the real truth of what's going on, only Cristiano Ronaldo can feel in, in, in terms of that. Does that make any sense? It's tough stuff. <laughs> well, that, even the words, so the, the word phenomenology, I think any ology starts sounding a bit, oh, here we go, this is going to be like, people tend to think, what, well, what does that mean? But it's quite a simple thing, really, phenomenology. It's just, I, I have in mind, it's just bringing being to light. Yeah. That's what phenomenology is. So people like Heidegger, essentially what they're saying is, look, you are not a thing in the world. You are not a rock, a tree, a box of matches, whatever it is, you are not a thing in the world. Basically what they were saying is, look, you've got to try and understand yourself, not as beings, but in terms of being. Yeah. So not as beings in terms of object, but what it is to yeah. actually be. And that's basically all, all yeah. phenomenology. It's like, so therefore you're not an object. Let's do some phenomenology to try and just dig into that a little bit and, and kind of work out what that is to be. You're a being here process that's always sort of just here taking part all the time and it's very obviously very eastern as well it's very spiritual you people yeah. listening might have heard about you know you know being and be and just be and sit there and just be and feel connected to the world and the, you know and all that or be part of it all that flow heidegger again he you know he'd, he'd, he'd read a lot of the stuff from the east he was massively influenced by it and obviously pre-socratic uh, philosophers who who hadn't started overthinking in in terms of what he said he said it was it was much more simple when we just we just accepted that we were just sort of here getting on with stuff rather than trying to separate everything out and objectify it and that then links back to it what's really a key theme for us isn't it in all these episodes is heidegger was big on authenticity so to just stay in that state of just you know just going along with things for him that was inauthentic wasn't it yeah it, it was it was what he called it fallenness this was another thing so he said that what you do you try and forget your being and get yourself stuck into projects a lot and do what they another thing he said that's man the they the society you're in tell you to do have a life where you basically sort of just do what you're told to do by modern conventions get lost in that and he said part he said we, it's very understandable that he wasn't having saying that humans were stupid or anything he said that's partly because you're frightened of dying that's it's because you're trying you know you're trying to block out the the thoughts of your of your being here and your fragility of of, of being in the world so you just like bury yourself into things to sort of so you don't have to think a little bit like what Frankel has looked at, you know, when he's talked about the Sunday neurosis, where some, especially, in, you know, when you had a bit too much time to sort of sit about, people really didn't like it. Started to think a lot about why they're here and so on and how long they have left and what they've done with their lives. And, like, oh my God, I can't be doing this. I need, I need some, uh, I need to have a go purchasing, spending some money <laughs> or get stuck back into a project. Uh, you know, or find something to do. So it wasn't criticizing humans. It wasn't saying, "Oh, Darwin is stupid because it falls into projects." Saying, "No, you know, but don't overdo it. It's it's important to not fall into things so much." And it, and that led him to actually say, "It's actually useful to remember that you've only got so much time, and time's passing by." And what are you doing with that time? And is it quality or are you just doing projects that you've just fallen into? So that side of it was a little bit like uh, what Sartre nicked off him into his 
sort of bad faith part. But, you know, that that's when I see sports people, you know, in my field, like just going to autopilot. They don't want to think about the fact their career might be ending soon. It's like, no, no, you know, and they do say athletes kind of die two deaths in some ways because the career, you know, finishes and then so on. And that, that's been an, a thing that's been a, like, a bit of a phenomenon for athletes who are so, so fallen in a way in the, in, in the gold medal dreams, in the sports, in what they do, you know, maybe this happens in other careers you know army and things you're so into it that's all you are you've fallen in so far it's very difficult then to, to, for that to come to an end but Heidegger was actually saying you should embrace the fact that you know that's going to happen and in one of his only little bits of advice ever he, he recommended people go and visit graveyards uh, which sounds a depressing thing um, but it's a little bit like the Tony Robbins thing what he does where he takes people down in the morgue when they've got problems he sort of shows them what dead bodies look like and how lifeless it is, and they spend a bit of time down there. Apparently, by the time they come back up through the lift and back into the world, into their lives, they're like, oh, my God, this is a beautiful, unbelievable world. What am I doing? Getting down about things, you know? Go for it. Uh, I've, uh, you know, and I know a few people, you know, when I've talked, had near-death experiences and some things like that. Sometimes you feel really reborn, and in a way, Heidegger was trying to say that, you know, it's like keep remembering the fact that you are through time. And that that really was. You mentioned it before about animals that tend to be just in instinct loops, don't they? Where everything's just they're not thinking really through time. It's just in the moment. Your instinctual responses, and uh, maybe simplifying that a little bit, but that tends to be what it is. Yeah. Whereas that is the key component of being a Dasein. It is we know our fate. We know pretty early on in our being that we are going to die at some point. Whereas I think it was Schopenhauer who said the first that an animal hears of death is when it dies, basically. Right. It just doesn't have that concept of it until that point where, I don't know, you're wandering through a forest one day and then another animal comes and grabs all you and it's like, oh God, it's not really thinking about it other than that. It doesn't exist as a concept. That's really the, the core component of being a Dasein, that self-consciousness that we are going to die at some point. And I think that's that's maybe why this is a useful episode to focus on for people because we've we all know what that feels like. Usually people maybe if they are a little bit stuck in that way of just doing tasks and keeping the mind off stuff tend to maybe experience that with a little bit of dread and you know anxious anxiety inducing isn't it you get angst of oh god i don't want to start thinking about well, i remember listening to uh, eckhart tolle uh, the spiritual teacher one time and you know he was saying it's you're often in that state where you, you you're in a state of lack and Heidegger said that you're a, that we're forward thinking. We, we we're temporal beings. We 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 look to the future, and that's lining up with a lot of modern neuroscience with that prediction machine. With the brain's evolved to be a prediction machine. It's 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 evolved to to be like, what's next? What's next? What's next? What do I need to know? What do I need to eat? What when that? You know, how's, how's my body feeling? What's coming up? So a lot of the new theories on the, what the brain does is it's just literally a prediction machine to survive and it doesn't care about being correct it just wants to survive first and foremost um, so it's scanning all the time now Heidegger was saying that he said you're just forward thinking all the time however there's, there's this weird thing it's a blessing and a curse it helps you but you also because you, you want the future because you want to be better in the future and get rid of this feeling that you lack things you know I want to get that job I, I, I want to get married I want my kids to grow up 
I want that you kind of at the same time existentially know that you, that means you're heading to time out. <laughs> it's like a weird, weird thing. So if you, you wish your life away and then it's gone, you know, people often say, where did the time go? You know, what happened? It's gone so fast. You know, oh, I can't believe it. You know, it's going, oh, it's going quickly. Make sure you know, you know, the advice, you know, I've had even with having Leo and stuff, it's been make sure you notice every moment it goes quick. Like there's a bit of regret there. So we're not just future thinking, we think back as well. And this was another thing he started to talk about. And he talked about how you can authentically think about time and, and, and how time, future time is better thought of as, as sort of moments of anticipation rather than, rather than you know, just, just waiting for something to happen. So is you know, and it, so there's other there's, there's very interesting things. It actually gets to a practical level. Realize, yeah, you know, we know the times, but use use your relationship with the future as constant moments of anticipation. Like, try not to be regretful and look at your past if you can as inspiration, like pulling from the past. And he particularly said, do that through your legacy. You know, do that through your family line. Do that through where you come from. You know, uh, you even even the human race. Try and authentically pull quality things from your past into your future and keep that going and he said that's a lot more authentic way than than looking back in regret or coulda woulda shoulda or this you know how the past what did wasn't right and you're trying to make up for it you know so it's not that he was trying to give any any sort of stupid life advice like now you know the like self-help life stuff he wasn't saying just do this formula and you'll all be okay he was literally just trying to say it's tough and complex being here in the world. And I find that really useful because I just think like the times where I like come in with my logical head as a coach or as, as a friend or something or as, an, as a therapist or whatever, a teacher with a student, it's really easy for me to just think of them as if like no empathy, like you idiot, you should have done this. This has happened to you. That's probably your fault and da 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 da. A bit of like the bad faith side. But what Heidegger kind of does, I think, with his th concept of thrownness and his concept that being here in the world's just tough. When I look at people now, I don't look at them as objects as much. I just look at them as like, if I think of them more as Darzine, I have more empathy. I think they've been thrown into the world. The parents didn't have a clue, in a way, what they were doing. Their parents didn't. They don't know what's going on. There's so many factors that... Yes, they could have controlled things and made things better and things are at their cause. But in many ways, they don't know what they're doing. They're literally just trying to survive with the with just being here. And that side of it, that empathy for them, it, it, it's, I think that's a very useful thing that, that it gets you to see people rather than just annoying objects that are always in your way <laughs> that that's a part some again some of our reflections and notes that we do when we're just thinking about the podcast before we record that that's something that i noted down or a question that i asked not to ask us but just myself more than anything, but exactly what you just said are we fundamentally sick because we've stopped seeing ourselves as beings in the world among other beings in the world so we do i think a lot of because we're looking you know that view we have it we're kind 
kind of very egocentric all the time, aren't we? Assuming beatings just because. If you go back to Descartes and I think therefore I am and all that yeah. stuff, that is your perspective. You're always you looking out on the world. So I think there is maybe a natural tendency to see ourselves as we're almost like us and we're subjects, but everyone else is an object. And maybe that's what Heidegger's getting at. We're saying, well, actually, yeah, as soon as you start seeing yourself yes. as that and you stop seeing the other people as other being, then you're kind of going to get into the, you know, you're going to lack empathy and stuff like that. And then maybe that's why I don't know, in a capitalist society and that type of stuff, it just goes haywire, doesn't it? Because everyone just sees everyone else as an object. To... Yeah, well, a lot of these philosophers, like even Nietzsche predicted it a bit more and even in his times, late 1800s, and then Heidegger, 19th, well, 20th century, going through the big part of the 20th century they saw the rise of technology and the, and you know we know you know the, the the century of the self basically you know and how important you are and your products and everything you own and there's obviously been a lot lot done on that that, that might be another an episode again you know um when everything's ultimately about yourself and me in the world and and, and so on and you see yourself as a commodity in a way you, you recognize yourself a lot through your car you recognize yourself through your job title you recognize yourself through you know what you've achieved or where you've been and or 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 think you're a failure because you haven't got certain things you you you're forgetting your being all the time you know and it's it's only when you might get really ill and nearly die you might think oh forget all that i'm just happy to breathe what have i been doing with my life you know i've been obsessed going to that building over there trying to be the boss of that place and climb that little bit of career ladder so I could get a speedboat and a bigger house and a bigger mortgage and more kids and more of it and uh, fine but I got a bit lost in it I, I, I actually forgot I just I'm just here being and I think what we did the other week was great because we did the bad faith stuff which is all about you know I'm almost ambition and make yourself better and do things for the right reasons and so on we went we delivered this on the course didn't we like the thrownness element almost as a, as a as a point of you were you were thrown into the world have empathy for yourself and we got people to dig out some of their old photographs from when they were like a baby and when they were maybe one years old or two years old and looking back at the time they were actually put in and the uh, the opportunities and even the technology that was around and in a way like how lucky they were to even be thrown in you know although some philosophers say you're unlucky <laughs> it's the worst thing that can ever happen that's another kind of kettle of fish but you were lucky to be thrown in you, you got you had look you had parents that cared in some ways you know you, you had you had a uh, good opportunities you had a good time you know that was that was your lot haven't you done well just to survive and make it this far why are you always this ambitious sort of what creature where, where you're always trying to be perfect and this and that just have a little bit more empathy for yourself. And that you mentioned technology. Heidegger was a big, big critic of technology, wasn't he? He was very much, he saw us as yeah. the way that we almost view nature as something to be exploited and we use technology to exploit nature and it's you know it's there for us to use kind of thing but when when you just mentioned there the example from the course as well one thing i find interesting is how that notion of being a darzine and experiencing what it is experiencing our, our own being it makes a distinction between imagine if you were sort of pre-science pre-philosophy you know you live in you're a caveman basically your experience of what it is to be a darzine would have been totally different 
different than ours, sir, so you and I, because of technology. You know, he, he was essentially saying that you would have had to have asked really quite ontological questions about what's going on, what's the purpose of this, and, yeah. and you wouldn't have been able to get an answer. So you might have just been walking along one night and you see a comet flying through the sky. Yeah. Us, we just Google that straight away. Well, what's that? And it's, yeah. it's a totally different experience of being because of technology. And he was like, that was a different ball game back then. That was like proper. This is what it is to be a being. You are engaging with the world on a much more fundamental level than we maybe are now, even though we've got all these tools and technology. Yeah, and you could go into the Amazon rainforest into people, wouldn't you? They're living in a certain way, and you spend three years with them, and you start to get a you start to get a feeling of how they exist. But if they came and lived in our society, you know, it's not they're better than us, or they're they're more natural, and we're more we're ruined because of technology. I think Hardy was just saying how technology has been so powerful. It's been helpful, you know, in some ways. It's it's been it's been a nightmare because it treats the world like it's just a. But in some ways, it's protected us. It's it's helped us. It's made a lot of joy, you know. So it's not it's not all down on humans and the technology. And and almost technology's out. It's almost a force out of control anyway. It's just humans' design just makes technology. It just always has. It always will. So again, it's just one of them thrownness things. But yeah, you know, you go out for a meal now. I was out in just at a cafe two days ago. I think there were five people taking pictures of the food when it got delivered. And that didn't happen when I was born. That was only the 1980s. No one was whacking out a camera fo- photographing the food so they could tell all the mates how amazing the life is because they've because they're eating a you know a, a crumpet that's got strawberries on a certain angle <laughs> with a blob of ice cream and a and a firework coming out of it. I don't know, you know. That's not to say these people are so stupid. Heidegger would say, "Well, you've fallen there into mo- you know into a modern thing." He did see it as a sickness, though. He he did see technology as a sickness because he 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 thought it was quite literally robbing us. So that moment you're talking about, there's someone just experiencing eating that crumpet and and being a Dasein in that moment. Technology has essentially robbed them of that moment because they're now looking at it through a screen and they're they're then going to post it on. They're not really experiencing eating the crumpet. It's a very different thing, isn't it? Uh, If you were being being a phenomenologist, let's say, you wouldn't presume that. You would ask the person and say, did you still taste the thing properly yeah i did did it bring extra joy that you took a photograph oh yeah i do it for my private collection i always I'm, i've been looking forward to it for three days i i wouldn't have come here even in the first place if i wasn't looking for something i could photograph and you know what i mean it's like you could say the same of people who painted mountains it's like you've sat there for three hours painting that mountain why don't you just come walk in it you know and we'd, we, we'd look at that now as being quite a, a peaceful or a fisherman wouldn't we oh you know you go fishing on your own in nature and you go oh yeah what a darzine way to live but you could be like why you're just focused on what fish you're going to catch you're not even here you, in phenomenological terms you would have to go to the individual and dig out what their actual lived experience of that was so I wasn't. I was just making a point about thrownness. That would not have happened in my time because the technology wasn't there. I'd have had to ramp out a big camera and probably a tripod, and and also not just the technology. It wasn't the done thing. Can you remember that though? I I can remember my mum and dad putting a sheet on the wall, you know, like a bed sheet, and they'd have like a I don't even know what they were called. The cameras where it was like you'd load the film in, and you know, there was, and it. 
we'll be sat in the front like looking at shit. Imagine that now. If you, and it's not like it's not like we're talking that long ago, really, in grand terms. But imagine if you did that with a like a fifteen year old now, they'd be like, What are you doing? They wouldn't have a comprehension. Well, it's like, you know, the T V, microwaves, there's certain bits of technology come along and certain that influence the times you're in so much. Look at the phone. You know, the phone has just changed so much, hasn't it? About and, and like Peterson says a lot, Jordan Peterson, which is be careful when you invent a technology because you don't know really what it's what its other uses. You say it's going to just do this, but it does all these 20 other things, changes. And that, again, was what Heidegger was saying. The, the, the phenomenology of something is is its ramifications and where it, where it ends up, what it ends up doing and meaning of way beyond what you've originally invented something for. So, yeah, it's all interesting, isn't it? You know, but the, the thrownness thing, I, I, I think, you know, like, you talk about language and you talk about like comedians and we we talked didn't we about all the fools and horses and comedy shows and why things have been successful you had a character in only fools and horses like del boy who was obviously thrown into the like, what were you were the 60s or early 60s or late 50s as a as a kid he had a, you know the whole shows about his his dad and how it was where he come from and lives in peckham and and it was all about him trying to become a millionaire this time next year will so it was a very 80s type thing of you are what you are and you've got to get better but what we liked about that story was was that maybe he wasn't ashamed of his thrownness either he sort of was dead comfortable still being a ducker and diver but still had ambitions and he generally looked like he could have a good time i know no it was a comedy character you know that's perhaps why he was like that kind of character's loved because we could all resonate with that. It's like we all want better things and we all want to be like, you know, he he became a yuppie, didn't he? Caricaturally, he was like, he couldn't wait to be like this new yuppie. Everyone around him were like, what are you doing? But he could still nip down the pub and put a, you know, and be like common in, you know, where we were from and, you know, muck about and duck and dive even though he wanted to. And I think, in a way, that's that's quite heartwarming because I think if you can treat yourself a little bit more lightly, yeah, I want to do that and I'd love that and that'd be good. And, if, you know, if I won the lottery, I'd do this. And But the moment that you get too stuck in that and forget that where you're from, you know, you f- you forget your innocence, your thrownness, the, the fact that you're even lucky to probably even be here, all the people that put you where you are, you know, you think you're so clever and all of that, you know, well, if you hadn't have gone to school or you hadn't been given an opportunity to do this or your granddad hadn't read to you, you know, and all these tiny little things where people invested in you, you wouldn't have been such a perfect person. So just remember where you come from and all these people that have put you there and how proud they would be of you, but be proud of yourself as well, you know. So it's this, you know, I like it. It's this back and forth of, yes, Sartre, take responsibility don't fall too much like what heidegger's saying don't just blandlessly oh well what can i do it's just the time i'm in and just go with it that yeah take your feel that anxiety you sometimes get by yeah i'm gonna die i don't want to or i'm I'm, i've got i want to become better i want better things yeah fine that's your darzine projecting forward but equally, use your past, you know, realise where you've come from, you know, chill out a bit. It's, it's, you're doing really well, you know, don't be embarrassed and ashamed of things too much. Let, let that, forgive that younger self, understand that person who was there, that kid, or where you were put in, was doing its best. That Darzine at that time was doing its best in the world, mucking about. And in a really weird way, you're still a kid mucking about, 
bungling along trying to survive. You'd stop taking yourself so self-seriously. And, and, and I think that's a kind of perhaps what the Eastern people say about take, getting rid of your ego, isn't it? Maybe that dropping of that seriousness. So, that, that, you know, all this stuff that you, you hear a lot of modern sayings and stuff. And it, Heidegger was kind of there first with his what he'd observed about being here in the world. To give it a little, not structure, but just to give a, people a little bit of a framework to think about. Because I think what, what you're referring to there really, where you, you know, where you're talking about considering your thrownness and not being ashamed of it or you know try to run from it or hide from it that's getting into that existentiality a little bit so what that is Heidegger had what's called his care structure or you'll see it commonly termed as his care structure uh, and it's like a central focus of this stuff really and basically it doesn't mean care about in terms of you care for your family or you care for your son or your daughter or your pet it just means stuff that you're interested in and care about more generally so it's it's a thing just in your in your reality really yeah we always want things to go our way every little thing you know we're always we're bothered about but it's like when you mentioned tasks and stuff, just the stuff that we're, that interests us and we're engaged in and that type of thing. We just care about it, don't we? And part of his care structure was, so we've talked about thrownness or you'll see it term facticity. So that's basically the reality that you are just chucked into. You have no choice in the matter whatsoever in terms of what period that you're born into in the world. You know, was it as a caveman like we've talked about yeah. or is it like a 15-year-old now on Instagram in the 2000s? You don't have any choice in your history, your culture, your class, your gender. You're just thrown into that. So that's that's your facticity or your thrownness. And then next, a lot or, or underneath that is what what's called fallenness. So Dan has referred to that a couple of times were and that's basically what other Daseins around you were doing so what are they up to the people that are in your immediate surroundings and society family friends etc and Heidegger said we tend to just fall into line with that or we fall into that so whatever the tasks that other people are doing whatever their behaviors are whatever choices they're making we're basically seeing what other Daseins are doing and we're maybe not copying but we're heavily influenced by what that is so we well that was what it called sorry John yeah that was just to clarify that was that das man yeah the they i brought that in on my phd in sport because when you're a, a person in a in a like a, a certain scene you're you're a dj in the rave scene you're a te- you're an academic in the academic scene you're a, a sports a squash player in the squash scene the they are prominent in your mind all the time what are they thinking of me you know it, even on your street you know, what are the neighbours thinking? What what are my peers thinking? You know, if I go to a school reunion, there's an instant they of, oh, these would these are the, the, you know, they're almost observing me constantly. They're thinking about me. And I almost have to play that game where they uh, accept me. And, and, and again, he wasn't saying that's bad. We're just saying that's part of being a Dasein. You are a social creature as much as you're an individual creature. And, and Das Man, the, the current they who are around you, are having an effect now i know that when i worked out with laura my wife and the tour she used to, she used to distract her a lot that I'd get bogged down we called it like the traveling circus and once we could start piercing through that and breaking that down and not caring as much about the they and the gossip and the who said this and this then that actually took a lot of pressure off and gave her a lot more freedom so in a way the fallenness or the bad faith into that dropped away but it, no but it is it's interest because essentially a lot of people i think do they're basically taking the cues for how should i behave 
in the world from what other people are doing. Um, so again, you know, Heidegger, like we've talked about with technology, one of the things he said was if you're living in a really consumer-driven society, you're basically given a load of predetermined tasks that you just need to do as a member of that society. So, you know, go to school, do this, do that exam, then get a job, and then you've got to do this and then aim for that. You've not really chosen those tasks. It's just that's what, again, they're there. Other societies given you as predetermined tasks. Yeah, if you do something a bit out of the ordinary, the they will let you know about it. Yeah. What are you yeah. doing? How come you've left that job? Are you stupid? Well, why have you took your kids out of school and doing that? Why did you go there on holiday? You know, well, should you not have invested in your future? Have you not got any life insurance? What? And, you know, why have you not got a new car? You're minted. You know, but well, I can't believe you live in this house, you know, with your success. You could live in this house, with, you know, that the, the they let you know. Well, he saw it as that, you know, people just living life, consuming stuff mm. for the sake of consuming it, essentially, like, because that's what they're told. Yeah, but they do it in a good way as well. I've been a bit negative there. They do it in a, you know, you're brilliant. Well, PhD, well done. You've, you've won that. Well done. You're doing really well. You know, they'd let you know. So again, you know, Darzine, it gets its cues, yeah, in a, in a negative and a positive way yeah. from they, you know, that, and we live like that. <laughs> but yeah, so that, that that's your factisty or your thrownness and then fallenness. Now, what Heidegger was saying was if you just stay at that level and you don't really consider or unpick, well, what is my thrownness and how has it influenced me and what you know what impact did that have? Or you don't really consider your fallenness, so what the they are doing and whether that's good for you or not and whether you should do that or not. He That's what he saw as being inauthentic. So in this care structure, he then brings in what he calls existentiality. And that's where, again, it's a core thing of being a Dasein, really. Like we said, you're not a rock, you're not a tree, you're not an object. A key factor of being a Dasein is you have possibilities. So we have choices. That is what it is to be a Dasein in a lot of ways. It's the fact that you do have possibility and choice. So what he was saying was, you know, that nature of the possibilities, that gives you existentiality. So you should be considering, well, what is my thrownness? What is my fallen and maybe yes. then you don't need to do what they tell you to do maybe there are things that you can't just use an excuse and say oh well it's not my fault that i was thrown into this i didn't choose this heidegger was like no you yes. still have a choice and that's where he, he really brought the authenticity in where he was like to be highly authentic is to really get into that existentiality what are the possibilities that you've got and take a hold of it and, and kind of forge your own path really that's how I see it. Anyway, I don't know if you see that slightly differently as those three levels, Danny. I see it exactly like that. And that's, that was the part that Sartre really nicked and nailed on. You know, you know, you, you the anxiety of always having that choice. And we know with our Frankel episode, we, he, he talked even about attitude. No matter how bad your situation, you've still got a choice of attitude, which he talked about in the, in the death camps and things. Uh, and some choices are harder than others, obviously, and dilemmas and... But again, Heidegger wasn't he wasn't putting value judgments on people. He was just saying yeah. you have that's the problem of being here. That's Darzine's blessing and curse. He he who can blame people for trying to escape that constant choice and constant you know I can do something about this um, because often there's times you just can't because we you know we looked at things like absurdity comes in the world the world sometimes acts on you you don't always act on the world and i think that's why i like heidegger he, he's not he's not giving any direct guidance he just keeps opening it up to say this is the complexity of, of being here and it's damned quite tricky being alive and being a Dasein. 
and, and I find that a lot of modern books and not you know or a lot of interpretations of of old philosophy which are now like modern books they say like no just 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 be just do gratitude and you'll be you'll all the complexity and go just ask the universe what you all you know or just join this religion and the and, and the complexity will go and he's saying he was saying that that can help if it helps you know if it might you know whatever but again if you go too far thinking you just can escape the darzine you know and all sorts you you you, you know you forgiven you know i see something like ronnie o'sullivan in snooker the best snooker player who's ever played snooker and he's constantly saying how chaotic and messy he is in his head and the game and he likes the game he hates the game he's a good player he's a bad player he he finds this game sometimes easy sometimes he's terrible and, and he's always acknowledging that complexity and the, the interviewers and often can't understand him they just need him to say no i am ronnie o'sullivan i am brilliant and i am in a good mood and i will win they don't they don't want it People don't want to hear chaos and complex stories. They want neat package narratives that make sense. We've seen that this week with the penalty shootouts, haven't we? So those, you know, there was a couple of threads on Twitter where you know Liverpool won the FA Cup, and it was like twelve tweet thread on this is why they won, and it oh, yeah. broke it down. It's because Klopp did this, but they didn't do that. This was a thing, and it was really like basically this is why they won the penalty shootout, and Chelsea yeah. didn't, and it it really took it down to that it ignored the complexity that's that's the forgetfulness of being that's forgetfulness that the that weren't machines taking the penalties it was people in a random situation but yeah you, scientists rationality right, too much rationality and and the thing with science is, is is like science isn't bad science is amazing but first and foremost science was invented by Darzines. that's again what heidegger was saying even if you study the sun the temperature the distance the size how long it'll last it was still came from an interested oh i wonder what that might be if we measured it the darzines first the being here thing was the first thing to invent the science you know so again you can get all rational and 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 you know i i spent a lot of time trying to help parents in sports and wrote, wrote a book on it and tried you know and didn't really have any solutions in it just try this this might work and so on so quite relativistic, which is what I'm like anyway. And I embrace, try and embrace ambiguities, you know. And, my, and again, my PhD was like trying to say like it was a complex, messy live life that was always oscillating and emerging and unfolding in strange ways, which I now understand that's what a lot more. When I was reading Heidegger, I was just going, this guy is answering all the things that I've been feeling where I've been in university doing these sort of models of resilience and growth mindset and, and winning models. And, and they've just made it so rational that I, I believed it and I tried it. And sometimes it kind of helped maybe by chance, maybe just because it focused me. So I'm not criticizing it as complete crap, but it were way, way, the way too, way too simplistic and, that's that's what you know if you if you that's the thing where if if you if you think everything's simplistic you end up beating yourself up because you end up thinking oh why i should have done this you know i should have eaten more food i should have should have done this instead of that and yeah elements of that but not all of it you know you 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 can't especially when it comes to just even like things like sport as well i mean how chaotic can sport be so heidegger and and simone de beauvoir as well which was very interesting more about ethics and morality and her ethics of ambiguity and how she felt a lot about you know a lot of people fall into roles 
caricatures to, to deny ambiguity. Uh, so that's another interesting an, an interesting kind of thing as well. Well, I don't know if you, you know the, the classic, it's almost like a meme now, isn't it? But you know the blue pill, red pill choice on the Matrix. And it's I suppose it's quite relevant to a lot of different concepts in philosophy. Like um, Usually it's like Plato's cave, isn't it? As, yeah. you know, take the red pill and walk outside the cave or take the, and just stay chained up in the cave and watching the forms on the wall. Yeah. I see Heidegger's care structure a little bit like that. Right. Where he's giving you the so that that existentiality. Mm. You know, so considering your your facticity and your fallenness. That for me is a little bit like that. Are you gonna take the red pill? Yeah. You know, where he talks about he talks about being deeply engaged in asking questions. Yeah. And, you know, examining your facticity and trying to understand your facticity. He talks a lot about being introspective. So realizing the yeah. tasks that you've fallen into rather than the tasks that you've actively chosen to do and pursue or, you know, whatever it might be. And that that really resonates to me. It's, it's a bit like, are you going to take the red pill and go, no, I'm going to be reflective and mm. um, think a bit more critically about the tasks mm. and the the pursuits that I'm pursuing because is it is it genuine is it authentic or is it well I've just fallen into this because because that was my thrownness and now I've just fallen into this you know what society is dictating I should do that's a bit like the blue pill isn't it just keeping your head down and, and going on with it he, he called it the, the, in, in his book being in time which is impossible to read so you, you just read all the interpretations as best you can get as close to it in your in your own understanding as you can so I'm by absolutely no means an expert on Heidegger but I know the base bones of it but you only need to know a few things sometimes and it can wake you up and that's the thing you're just saying things you see the trouble with Darzine is Darzine's nature is so natural and familiar that you miss it so but he said he said but you only need a little glimmer of understanding sometimes to know what you already know you know there's a there's no sometimes you know things but you don't know them factually do you know what i mean you, you get a sense you know something and you and, and, and it's like a hunch or a gut feeling and and, and and so when we talk when you talk about darzheim you know people know that feeling of just being here although they would never have thought about it before because no one ever talks about it. it sounds crazy so it's quite hard to actually get it because it's so familiar it's so natural but one of the things that he said as well, that like with that, that I liked at the end, he said he had this concept of anticipatory resoluteness. That was basically what I was saying earlier. It's an authentic way of considering your unfolding nature into the future. That you know you're going to get old. You know that things are on the horizon. You know you're going to get bits of bad luck and so on. You know, it's probably like Noah's Ark thing, isn't it? Build an ark because you know what's going to be coming. The flood will be on its way eventually or someone will come and do things or you will get ill, you will deteriorate. So all the time, every day, take try to take part and make small, tiny little decisions and choices and in anticipation of the resol- resoluteness that you're going to require. So you're going to be an... If, you, if you're a goal, you're a Jack Nicholas saying to... Uh, who was it? Who was it? Or Paul McGinley, it was actually, the, the Irish golfer. He said, any advice for me, Jack? He said, yeah. He said, you're going to lose 99% of your golf time. So get used to losing, pal. It was like, I thought, yeah. And, and oh, great. What a great piece of advice. Why? Well, he was he was saying, you, you think you can just, you, you're going you're gonna to be disappointed in yourself all the time. So, so anticipate that. And how are you going to handle it? Whereas if we're not careful in life, we don't we, we, we don't do the anticipatory resoluteness. We, we go around like victim. Oh, this has happened. Oh, this has happened. 
oh, I can't believe that's happened. So Heidegger said authentic. He said you can live that way and let things come and wash and just be a hedonism and you might live fast, die young type thing and take your chances. You might be the 100-year-old smoker or you might be the person that thinks, no, probability, if I keep smoking, I'm probably going to die of lung cancer in my 60s, 70s. You know, before a lot of this stuff we take for granted now about being reflective and being critical thinking, maybe, you know, and the... He obviously was he was saying that Dasein can help itself in its existence by having this concept of anticipatory resoluteness. And we all know that feeling, you know what I mean? We know we, sh- we shouldn't really go out for the third night on the trot. Shouldn't, re- shouldn't really open another gambling account. <laughs> I shouldn't really have another ice cream. I had one, you know, like, okay, I'll have one at the weekend. Let's have a clean week. Yeah, we all make these tiny little part decisions based on trying to work out what could be right or wrong. And equally, people could go, I'm never drinking again. And and that's because it's the devil. And it's like, well, actually, that could be the worst thing because you could miss out on some amazing social occasions and you could be a misery and you could take yourself too seriously. It's I, I try to I try to summarize that simply in my in, in my PhD, you know, for for athletes living a sporting life, like you can't escape the need to constantly take part every day in what you're unfolding is. The moment you try and deny that and someone just tell me what to do or you just want to follow a creed or a maxim or a religion or a cult or the latest thing, you're probably going to get a bit unstuck. You've, you've switched off from trying to make tricky situations into potentially better situations, even if that sometimes means going on a three-week holiday. Go and have the holiday, but choose to do it. You don't wait to burn out, you know. I wonder where you think this comes in then, because another distinction he made, and it reminded me of it when we just mentioned the penalty shootouts there and being overly rational and overly scientific. He makes a distinction between thinking and calculating, which again appealed to me where for Heidegger, he said real thinking is thinking about being, whereas most people... The thinking that they're doing is actually calculating, which again goes back to the, you know, that notion of everything's technical and rationalistic and scientific. And we're too far over that end. So again, even in life choices, I think we're maybe a little bit like that as well, aren't we? Where, you know, when you're thinking into the future, like you're talking about there, we're probably just calculating stuff rather than truly thinking about our being. And I find that distinction really quite, quite interesting. And again, he takes it back to, you know, the impact of technology on that and stuff where everything's, you know, monitored now with stats and numbers and facts and figures. And you're forgetting about, you don't really know how you feel anymore because you're relying on an app to tell you, well, you've had this much sleep and you've ate that many calories. And it's all calculating rather than thinking about being. I I couldn't agree more. And I I remember reading a bit of the text. I I didn't get through the whole book. Like I, I don't do with a lot of books like, i don't know why Some, sometimes you just don't finish them and uh because you're on audio books you need to read properly <laughs> yeah this one was like i was giving it and uh sometimes just too hard to read they're overwhelming <laughs> at the time and then i go back to them and i find them really easy it's weird but it was called the ravenous brain and it was probably about eight years ago and it was about basically the brains just wants and that's like calculative just it, it learns to want info Sometimes when I've been out drinking, say I've had like, you know, got not, I don't say a bad hangover where you just battered, just say four, five, six beers, eight, nine, ten, you know, uh, <laughs> your day after or for two days, it takes the edge off. I feel a little bit like, oh, and it's actually like, reminds me of like chilling out a bit and I'm not as 
there's a different kind of thinking. I'm just more being, and maybe that's what people feel when they go on holidays and you're not, they're not in, they're not caught up in their everydayness. What was another Heidegger phrase? This everydayness that sweeps you along in your everyday life. I mean, that's so hard to break because you've got appointments. You know, we're almost like appointment machines, aren't we? Now we get get there, we got them. We've got to see our friends, and we've got an, a podcast to do. Then we've got a lecture. Then we've got that on Friday, and you run your life by appointments. And that's but that's that's the everydayness that we now exist in, in a way. You know, that's a that's a practical kind of useful thing in many ways to survive in the world you know keep a roof over your head and 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 keep your contacts and keep you in order and your habits going like you know for, for what we do and all sorts of things but whenever when i've relaxed and i've had a few beers or i just can just chill or go walking a bit more I am very fully aware of a less calculative thinking and I'm a bit more like like being just a bit more chilled and relaxed. And that's an area for me I have to keep trying to work with because I'm obviously, like we are, me and you, quite intense, aren't we, on the, on the calculations and the thoughts. So you never pass this. You know, it's not like we're talking about this. So therefore, we do everything that you're supposed to do. We're, we're as... Like you might say, we're sick. <laughs> you know, if what you might say, you've fallen or sick. Because you know, you're a Darzine. You're Darzine, I'm Darzine. But do I feel bad about it if I do it? Do I beat myself up? Not really. Overall, I think I tend to do okay, you know, compared to when I look at some people and I see they're a bit lost in the in the direction and their heads and, and so on. Definitely do too much. Well, it remind, what's, so what you've just said there reminds me of two people. Ray Pete, for one, who's... You have know, people. He's a he's he's a bit of a yeah. bit of a madhead, isn't he? He's a bit of a kind yeah. of out there biologist, and I'd, I'd call him a philosopher. But he's someone I've taken a lot from in recent years, and he he talks about how he has full days yeah. where he won't read anything and he won't speak to anyone, and he basically gets away from that verbal that verbal side of his brain where everything's about verbalization, and he just gets away from it, and he just goes and paints or he, he listens to music yeah. or you know, and just gets out of that yeah. verbal. Element of just constant thinking and rationalizing about stuff and the other person who is a kind of a mate of both of ours john kiley so remember one of the one of his things really is a is a really prominent strength and conditioning coach and Mm. um lecturer and i know you and laura worked with him didn't you but you know when you talked about when you've got a hangover i think what you're tapping into there is because we all do it you've been out and you're feeling rough you're tuning back into how you actually feel so you go well i won't do that because yeah. i was out late last night so i maybe i maybe have an earlier night tonight or i won't do this because so you kind of tune back into your being and john kiley was always big on that you know with because he's working with high level athletes like like he did with laura he'd often just say to them how are you feeling what's been going on they maybe had a bust up with the yeah. boyfriend or you know they've maybe had a particularly hard session and he's very keen to move away from well it doesn't matter Absolutely, what the plan yeah. says because a lot of people now it's like well this is what my training plan says i'm doing tonight it's this but you're maybe feeling like you're all yeah. over the place emotionally yeah. he would be like no well, we won't do that then we'll, we'll do something else or we'll miss a day have a day off that's like what heidegger say that's thinking about being isn't it rather than well the rational scientific training plan that we've drawn up for this olympic cycle says this so this is what we're doing regardless of you as a darzai well john john's work which is well known isn't it now brilliant work on basically debunking training models and periodization right and bringing in stress i I, you know what i tried to do with mine was very similar to john in a sort of different ballpark it was like 
let's get real. <laughs> you know, stop. Let's stop being like calculators. Let's get real again. We're people. We're Darzan in the world. It's things are changing all the time. Moods, like you know, and I, and I, but that that's it. It's, it's John's. That's why he's so good. Mark Campbell's like that. We train Laura as well. Now we're head of EIS and all that stuff there, helping people. And I just try and be like that with players. You know, I've had players in the World Championships this week and it's not really gone that well for a lot of them. And uh, it's like you don't just jump onto the blame game and look at it like it's calculative. You come in with some suggestions and say, do you think it could be this? Or could you do that? And But sometimes you leave it because you... You know that there's big background issues going on, or the opponent were just unbelievable for some reason, or whatever. You know, you can you get a sense, and I think that's it. You, the way of saying it is, you sense make around people more than you calculate around people. Yeah, that that that's that's perhaps a good way yeah. of saying it. But it's hard to put that on academic courses, isn't it? And 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 things because it's like you can't teach any personal. You might only be able to sense make with your daughter or your wife that you can't sense mate with anybody else so it's like well what can i do with that in my career that's no good i'm not going to value that what i'm going to value is a is an approach where i can make sense of everybody everywhere who's ever lived regardless of the culture we'll just call that context but we'll bypass that we won't actually get into it we'll just say yeah it's context dependent it's like no <laughs> no you can't just sidestep that and again, that Heidegger would have been madly critical of that. You can't just throw in, yeah, well, it's context dependent, like, or, or it depends. Well, that is the actual main part. <laughs> you can't just, you know, you can't caveat it with that. Like, your whole thing falls to pieces. In, it points to something useful, and it's useful what you've said. But I admit how partial it is, please, because you're talking about this is applying to people. You're not building aeroplanes. Well, if you're building an aeroplane, I want a full-on scientist, obviously, yeah? But when you're talking about people and life and how to live, which is what we kind of do on this podcast, Heidegger was pointing and saying things that were that was uh, really interesting, not, not correct and totally fine, just interesting stuff and it's like we said we're we're well often we're interpreting others interpretations of heidegger's work aren't we so we're not saying you know this is this is not a lecture oh no we, we actually could be way off yeah exactly these, yeah. these are our interpretations and it, it's yeah. for people listening to to maybe yeah. use them as they will and maybe that's a useful way to conclude yes the episode then so yeah. To take it back to authenticity, I think that care structure is maybe a useful thing for people to consider. So what's your facticity? What have you been thrown into? And just just unpicking that a little bit really about the influences that's had and how and not in a negative way either, just seeing some of the positives as well that you know that you're thrown this gave you to make you the person you are today consider your fallenness so what are the tasks that you're working on? You know, why are you working on them? Is it because it's truly your authentic path that you want to follow or have you maybe fallen in with the people around you a little bit too much and clearly the way that you can do that is by appreciating your existentiality the possibility that you have the choices that you have at your disposal as a Dasein and that is then when Heidegger says that is being authentic Mm. it's not going I think he, he did he did refer to radical authenticity mm. at one point, but it's not really a dichotomy. It's not either or. You're not inauthentic or authentic. Oh, no. It's a bit of a path, isn't it? So one thing that we've done with the people on the course in the last week, the analogy that we, we started talking about was, imagine you're driving up the M6 
So the bottom of the M6, I think, does it start at Rugby or somewhere like that? Start off, and then I think there's, I think we we established there's 18 service stations on the M6 yeah. as you're driving north. Um, so the analogy we use is, you know, the further you go up, and if we consider that that's then, we associate that with the more authentic you are. So the higher up the M6 you get, the more authentic you are. What we were saying was clearly at the service stations en route, there's fewer people at each one because the more authentic you are, you know, there's yeah. going to be less people people who are that authentic so and the choice we kind of said was like how far up the m6 are you going to get because if you get to the the top end so like gretna i think might be the last one you're basically the only person there because that level of real radical authenticity there's no one else there so it could be quite a lonely place so there has to almost be it's like what's your red line like what's authentic enough but you don't want to go too far that then you just alienate yourself and the rest of you have to play life's game you have to join yeah, you've, there's some things as part of your fall on this and your thrownness and all that that you've just got to, you can't. Absolutely, forgive yourself. Yeah, it's made some bad choices, you know, football, you know, go with things, that's the way life goes, that kind of stuff, yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 that, that might be a useful thing for people to ponder on. How far up the M6 do you want to get? What's a comfortable level for you where you feel, yeah, I feel I am being, I'm considering my existentiality, I'm not just a victim to my thrownness you know i'm just mindlessly falling in with what's around me you're considering that but you then don't want to set fire to the whole thing and go right yeah. well i'm gonna not do anything that anyone else is doing and you just become this kind of lone ranger type yeah. type person so that's maybe a useful thing to just consider for people you're examine and understand your thrownness and your fallenness and then just decide are there maybe little things that yeah maybe falling in a bit too much with that i shouldn't be yeah and you've all you can always back out never too late you can always go god i've been like a hardcore proponent of that i'm gonna look a right idiot now to everybody if i don't if i if i if i pretend i'm not a vegetarian anymore but i really want to eat meat again you know then don't worry like it doesn't mean you're a, you're an inauthentic prat and no one's ever going to like you again just you know you've always got a choice you can always just go well i've changed my mind and i know that's, that's just i'm different now something's happened last one for me the last final bit would be just that what we said earlier dig out some old photographs of when you were really young preferably with your parents or whoever was around obviously providing it was wasn't you know the, the worst time ever and stuff but just have a look at some of the photographs or a little movie and look where you came from and remember that remember that thrownness that you that you didn't have a choice in and therefore don't beat yourself up about every little thing that's happened to you and your fate and everything a lot of it was the world acting on you it wasn't it wasn't you acting on the world as much as we think we're all in control now and that still goes on uh so and that might lead to the absurdity the, the absurdity episode we did didn't it you know it's fair to say as well everyone who's done that not exercise but they've they've dug out some photos and stuff every single one of them said they really enjoyed it and it does it gives you a provided you didn't have a really traumatic childhood and you know we're not dismissing that that stuff at all but for most people i think it gives you that warm feeling of you looking back at probably people who aren't even here you know like grandparents yeah. great grandparents different family members and just little things that you see and remember it does it gives you a warm little buzz doesn't it and you go actually yeah that's that's what it was like back then that's where i'm from and yeah. these are my people and yeah i think it's a good exercise to do to just spark a little bit yeah, of, absolutely great. bit of reflection good stuff